Acts uh, 1, and then verses 1 through 11. So, the first account I composed, I composed Theophilus about all that Yeshua began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and as a cloud received him out of their sight, and as they were gazing intently into the sky, while he was going, behold, two men in white, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Yeshua who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Why have Yom Yeshua? Well, first and foremost, because we're honorary, and if everybody does one thing a certain thing a certain way, we will do it differently, right? Um, that's intuitively obvious. Seriously, um, we have uh, seen somewhat of a shift. I, I believe it's a healthy shift in the Messianic Jewish community um, from an attitude that is absolutely hostile to Christmas and anything having to do with Christmas and uh, ranting and raving about the paganism of Christmas to saying, you know, that's not our bag. We're not comfortable with the trees, with the green, with the red, and all this kind of stuff. However, as followers of Yeshua, we better be comfortable with the truth, historical truth, of the Incarnation. The fact that God came down to earth, took a human form, walked with us, ate with us, climbed the mountains with us, and for the most part, we didn't get him because we expected him to look like God. And he didn't. He looked like us. And he didn't fulfill our fantasies. And what was our fantasy? Well, the biggest fantasy was that he would take a big magic wand and wave it and fix everything 
and uh, there will be no more problems. Well, Jewish answer. In some ways he did. In other ways he definitely did not. And this is where Jewish critics look at us and they say, how could he be the Messiah? Look at the mess in the world today. And, and of course we have to agree with them on one hand that the world is in a mess. On the other hand, he is definitely the Messiah. But God's idea of doing things was not to fit into our fantasy. So I want to pause for a minute because we're going to be beginning a series in the book of Acts that in some ways will parallel what we've been looking at in the book of Nehemiah in terms of recognizing that the world is in a mess, recognizing that the only way that it can be fixed is by the Lord. And as we engage in it, first, first and foremost, by seeking him and being quiet and knocking, uh, knocking on his door and kvetching at him and saying, Lord, there are issues that need doing, need fixing here. And second of all, as we are engaged and empowered, then we are let loose and we do it. Now, in the book of Nehemiah and the book of Ezra, the term that's typically used is the gracious hand of God was upon me. Um, in the book of Acts, of course, it's presented differently. Same concept, just different terms. And, of course, the emphasis is on the coming of the Holy Spirit. Part of reality for us is that we have our feet in some ways in two camps. We have it both in we're connected and are increasingly connecting with the Jewish community that does not accept Yeshua. And at the same time, we are deeply connected with the community of followers of Yeshua who are primarily non-Jewish. And so we interact with both sets of ideas and part of the issue for us when we talk about the Holy Spirit, there's all kinds of bizarre and funky teachings. Not to imply that we have the absolutely pure um, and undiluted understanding of the Word of God on the coming of the Spirit, but we happen to be arrogant enough to think that because of our background and understanding of the Tanakh Scripture, the Hebrew Scripture, that we perhaps have a different perspective. It might be a little healthier, but again, I want to pause for just a minute and... Um, and pray and commit this entire series of messages to the Lord. Lord God, we, uh, we thank you that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We thank you, Lord God, that you encourage us, that you challenge us, even that you rebuke us when we need to be convicted of sin. And Lord God, we pray, we 
gladly commit, commit this series of messages into your hands. We pray, Lord God, that for each one of us, Lord, that we would hear from you loud and clear and that we would understand your vision, your destiny, your call for us as individuals and as a mishpacha, as a corporate body. Lord God, that you would take away whatever mist and lack of clarity or even confusion there is. Lord God, that as we read and study your word in these chapters, that your call for us would emerge with a great deal of clarity, that we would understand, Lord, what you have for us, and that we would have a clear sense of purpose and vision of how you want us to pursue it. And we pray, Father God, that in all things you would receive much honor and glory and that your kingdom would expand. And we ask this in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen. Amen. Don't you sometimes wish that that the Lord would take a wand and just wave it over your life and uh, blow away all the baloney uh, and, and uh, make everything peaceable and normal, whatever normal looks like, um, or give, in, in our case, give us a boring day. That, that, that's one of our fantasies, by the way, show and tell here this morning. Um, and uh, thinking of uh, fantasy, Joe and I went to see a movie uh, which was a remake of a 1947 movie called The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Uh, and yes, it was good. It was based on a short story published in 1939. But this is fascinating. Here you have a guy who is milk toast, vanilla. Um, who is, um, in this version of it, he is the negative assets manager. Now, doesn't that sound like corporate America? Um, he is a guy who is basically stuck in a corner, uh, in a dim corner, um, going through photographs that are brought and determining what works and what doesn't work. And... Um, because he is Mr. Vanilla, he has these unbelievable, vivid uh, daydreams, fantasies that take him into all kinds of places in the universe. Um, one of which, of course, is that he has a crush on, um, on one of the, his, his co-workers, a gal named Cheryl, who is in a different corner of, this is uh, Life magazine, and uh, as you can imagine, this organization is about to be downsized, and he is about to be fired, and separated from his love, who doesn't know that he loves her, and so he ends up going to Greenland and uh, being dropped out of a helicopter into the icy waters of Greenland, right next 
to a great white shark and uh, he just happens to be untouched by the great white shark. Uh, then he goes to, to Iceland um, to a volcano and he uh, skateboards and, and bikes and runs up this volcano uh, only to have the volcano spew volumes of ash and lava and of course he is able to outrun it. And uh, then he goes to Afghanistan and climbs the mountain and meets up with um, a fellow who is supposed to be uh, Sean Penn, but a different name. And uh, at this point, you're, you have no choice but to uh, discount any disbelief and roll your eyes and say, mm-hmm, yes. And uh, then, of course, he is reunited with Cheryl, and he gets his picture splashed on the cover of Life magazine. So that, folks, is fantasy. Um, you might say a nice fantasy or not. But the truth is, most of us, I hope all of us, recognize the fact that we cannot live in the realm of fantasy. Because reality smacks us in the face. And so that's on one hand. On the other hand, we read scripture, all kinds of wild passages. And if you've been a, a believer for any length of time, you know that God has this unfriendly habit of taking us and plucking us and putting us way outside our comfort zone. So coming back to fantasy, fantasy can be defined as the act of imagining things that are impossible or improbable. Well, that sounds an awful lot like faith, doesn't it? Uh, in Scripture, a number of occasions we are told to expect the things that are impossible. Going all the way back from Genesis to Jeremiah and, of, of course, to Matthew, with God, nothing is impossible. Amen. Romans 4.17, God calls into being the things that are not currently existing. And then to add insult to injury... In case we happen to be skeptical, we're told in Romans 14 that what is not of faith is of sin. In other words, if you approach life from the perspective of a skeptic, yeah, right, uh, good things will happen, yeah, right, things, you know, sort of the uh, Eeyore-ish approach, where are you are really not willing to engage in faith and expect that God will take you someplace you haven't been, been before. That based on the current reality, the facts on the ground, nothing significant will change in your life, nothing dramatic will happen in your life because what is happening right at the moment is vanilla. So you're convinced that uh, chocolate with cherries will not be part of your reality. 
And so there is a balance there. Where does fantasy begin? Where does faith begin? Etc. How do you determine what is faith and what is presumption? What is fantasy? You know, brought to mind the parable that Yeshua gives us of the wheat and tares that they grow up and they look very similar and at some point you begin to look at them and say ah that's wheat that's tares that's the wheat like weeds and you learn to distinguish them so a couple of thoughts one is that fantasy begins with us it originates with us it's a project product rather of our creative and wild imagination. Um, what we would like reality to be. You know, like, if I only had a brain. Um, how we would like things to happen. That's fantasy or presumption. Faith, on the other hand, originates with God. Specifically, it is based on something that He has said in His Word. That he has communicated. And yes, sometimes what God has communicated doesn't seem to overlap and, and touch reality as it currently exists. And so part of what happens is that sometimes we read the Word of God and it's wonderful and we want to make things happen. And we jump and grab them with both hands and both feet. And then things do not happen. And so we get all confused. How do, how do we distinguish between faith and fantasy? For me, it has been simply this. A radical, unwavering commitment to know God's will and to do it. Stop and ask yourself... What drives my life? What defines my life? Is it me and my approach, my strategy, my program, what I have laid out? Or is it my desire to somehow know what God wants and to pursue it and do it? If what defines us is us, then the great and glorious things are probably fantasy. And we might even make them happen. But they're not of God. If on the other hand, our commitment is to know what God wants and to hear His approach and His strategy and take the steps He lays out for us, then what we have is faith. Hugely different. Again, it may look similar sometimes. But ultimately, they're hugely different. And the truth is, it's a steep learning curve for all of us to understand what is faith and what is fantasy. Because there are different times when we find ourselves in situations where we are tempted to fantasize. And the disciples of Yeshua in this situation, I believe, are just in that position because the resurrection has just taken place. 
And Yeshua spent 40 days of teaching, but he's about to leave. He's about to leave. And their question is probably, the question in their mind is probably, okay, what's going to happen now? Our Messiah is about to be taken from us. What are we going to do? And so what we see here is this interaction between Yeshua and his disciples. And I want to take just a couple of minutes and talk about this book because we will be uh, following um, the various chapters here. Um, so just want to take a moment. People typically refer to Luke as a Gentile and, and this Acts and, and Luke as letters written to, to Gentiles. Well, in a sense, yes, but more likely um, there's increasing evidence that Luke is writing to a group of high-up Jewish believers. That Theophilus could have been from the family of the high priest. And Luke is saying in verse 1, I wrote all that Yeshua began to do and teach until the day he was taken up in heaven. Why does he say that? Well, probably because the implication is that what we see in this book, the book of Acts, is it going to be a continuation of what Yeshua did earlier in the book of Luke. And if you understand the ministry of Yeshua, remember that he said, greater works than this you will do. That we, you and I, are his representatives here on earth, and we are continuing to do the work that he had begun to do. After his suffering, some translations have passion, which just means suffering but part of what Yeshua had to do is to prove to them that he was real he did that with with Thomas when Thomas said Lord unless I see the the prince you know where the nails went in I will not believe but besides that Yeshua appeared to them multiple times and we know from 1 Corinthians 15 that Yeshua appeared to at least 500 people and you say, why does he have to bend over backwards to prove that he is real? Well, think about it. Something great happens in your life, and you might say, thank you, Lord. Yes, this is wonderful. And then the next breath, you probably said, well, I think this has probably had natural causes. It probably was something that I did or she did or he did and it somehow came together. It really wasn't necessarily God. Part of what the Lord does in our life because we are clueless, I'll speak for myself, we're clueless sheep. The Lord had to come, has to come back to us again and again and say to us, hello, are you listening? Are you paying attention? This is me. This is not some kind of natural circumstance that just turned out for the good. This is me. That is why Yeshua had to devote all kinds of 
energy, many convincing proof that he was alive, which he has to do with us because we have short attention. We have short attention span. We realize that the Lord is with us and we celebrate and have a good time and then shortly afterwards we forget. And at least it blesses me, folks, to know that my relationship with God isn't based on how unbelievably astute and spiritually clever I am. That it's based on God. That I don't have to fear and say, oops, I just blinked. God just blew out of here. But simply recognize that what God knows and believes that I need to know and have, he's going to come back again and again at different angles, many proofs, so that I get the simple fact that he has been talking, that he's been acting, that what is really essential and necessary for me to get, that he will see to it that I get. That takes the 800-pound gorilla off my back. And it tells me that I don't have to be perpetually nervous about, oh, did I really hear from God? Was it last night's pizza? Was it something else? So that is why we find in the last chapters in, in Luke, in the last chapters in John, and here in Acts, that the Yeshua seems to pop in and out. Because they needed to get the fact that he was real, just as we do. And he teaches them about the kingdom of God. Now why on earth does Yeshua spend all this time for 40 days or so teaching them about the kingdom of God? Has he not been teaching them about the kingdom of God all the way from the beginning? Remember in Matthew 4 he said repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Then in Matthew 13 he gives them large block of teaching about what the kingdom of God is like. What is so important about the understanding of the kingdom of God that he had to give so much teaching? Well, if we were to take a show of hands here, which I will not do, and ask everybody here to write down a, a couple of sentences about your understanding of the kingdom of God, I would say that we, we would have everything from A to Z and Z to A. Because unfortunately, it is not something that we understand, we get our arms around, and it doesn't really fit our reality. Because, folks, please hear me, for, for the most part, we live our lives as practical atheists. Think about it. If God wasn't in our life tomorrow, would our day look remarkably different than it does if he is with us? Do we really need God? Think about it. Well, we say up here, but then we live life as if the Lord really doesn't matter. So the kingdom of God really doesn't matter. So that's why we don't talk about it. Wednesday night we spent, we've been spending a lot of time going over this basic scriptural teaching of what the kingdom of God is about. Why? Because it's something we just don't get. We don't get our arms around. 
So a couple of factors and then we'll get into the rest of the chapter. The kingdom of God is simply about the fact that God is king. I know you say, hello. (laughs) Which means that God rules. Which means that what happens in your life isn't based so much on what you do, what you don't do, what others do, what others don't do, what Satan does, what Satan doesn't do, what President Obama does or doesn't do. Yeah, I know, I've been seeing believers just overflowing about that. What happens in our life, folks, is first and foremost because God is in control. Who al-haki say? Can you say that? Who al-haki say? We either believe that or else we become Buddhist, folks. Think about it. If the Lord is not in control, then what is the purpose of believing in Yeshua? That he died and rose again. Well, that's a nice set of doctrines. If the Lord is not active, if he is not managing reality, if he is not in control ultimately of what's, what's happening, then as Paul says, we of all people are most miserable. We're talking something that really has no reality. So the Lord is in control. The kingdom of God is expanding. As more and more people embrace Yeshua, as you and I learn more and more about how to relinquish control, get our greasy paws off, and welcome His rule, then the kingdom of God grows in us and it expands, then at some point over here, as we see at the end of the book, the kingdom of God will have absolute, absolute reality. That what is up up there in heaven is the same thing as what's going to be down here on earth. So as we get that, as it becomes part of our DNA, then we learn to settle down regardless of the ups and downs and bobbing and weaving that we go through. And then we learn to listen. Because maybe God has something to say to us that we want to hear. You say amen to that. So here, on this episode, Yeshua says to them, do not leave Jerusalem. But wait for the gift my father had promised. So we have both a negative and a positive. Do not leave Jerusalem. In other words, don't scatter. When you think about sheep and how they function without a shepherd around, they tend to scatter. You know, the grass is real green over here. No, I think the grass is green over here. according to our discernment. And what we have seen in Nehemiah, we'll see here in the book of Acts, and that is that God's purposes require 
that people commit to being together. God requires that his people come together and band together in order for him to do his big work. And Yeshua's instructions here, when you think about it, from a human practical perspective, really didn't make a whole lot of sense. He said, do not leave Jerusalem. Oh yeah? Well, I want to leave Jerusalem. Uh, I'm a Galilean. I don't belong here. You know, I got my family up, up north. Furthermore, this is a hostile environment. Hello, Yeshua, you were crucified here a couple of months ago. And uh, things are still kind of, kind of tense. And then think about something, another factor here. What did Jerusalem represent to these disciples? Jerusalem represented a place of failure. Jerusalem was a place of failure. Think about it. Here you have Peter standing up and saying, Lord, everybody else will leave you. I'm true blue to the end. And then um, the servant girl asks him, are you one of his? No, nah, I never heard of the guy. Um, they failed the Lord. They failed the Lord. When Yeshua was by himself praying the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, can't you guys hang around with me and support me? And they all scattered. So it was a, a place of failure. And think about it. When we find ourselves in a place where we have failed... What is our inclination? Our inclination is to beat it out of there. Say, well, I need to find another place. I'm, I'm going to make a fresh start. And it's my conviction, folks, and I, I believe Scripture bears it out, that God does some of His finest work in our place of failure. Because we know we failed, and we know we're going to need to trust God in order for whatever good things he has in mind to take place. And that sometimes, often what the Lord does is he says to us, you screwed up here, you failed, okay, we're going to go down the same path, what looks like the same path, and this time we're going to get it right. And that's what we find, for instance, with Peter. The guy who stuttered in front of a servant girl, stands in front of the Supreme Court of the land. So when Yeshua says, don't leave, every fiber in their being said, Lord, I got to get out of here. The Lord says, don't leave, don't scatter, be together. I have a plan for you in this place of failure. Then he gives us another fun directive, the positive one, is wait. 
I think for most of us, waiting is a dirty word. Think about it. We consider waiting to be time wasted. Either because of our inertia, because we procrastinate, because we can get off our tush and do things. We do tomorrow what should be done today. Or because of other people's incompetence. You know, Joe and I were in uh, Phoenix in November and just needed to rent a car. You know, you've, I, I think most of us have rented automobiles before. doesn't take a nuclear physicist to do that. Just come up and say, my name is so-and-so. I'm going to be staying here for such and such a time. The guy or lady punches it in, says, here's uh, the key. Go there, get it, end of story. We were there for an hour because the fellow who waited us didn't understand the computer and didn't have the good sense to go get help from somebody else. You know how it is when you get off a plane and you, 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 you're sort of just trying to get reality on the ground and then you, you get smacked with someone who makes you wait. But what you find in Scripture, folks, is that God's blessing normally come to us as we learn to wait. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way, We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised, or through patient faith. What God has for us individually and corporately, will come as we learn to wait. And by the way, in Scripture, uh, for us, waiting is a passive word. You just kind of turn over and, and play like you're dead. <laughs> Scripture, both in Hebrew and in Greek, has a totally different idea. Is here, for instance, the word that's used here means to remain in place with expectancy concerning a future event. In other words, um, waiting with confident expectation. Isaiah 64 4 tells us that it. It has never been seen any place else what the nation of Israel is seeing, and that is God acts on behalf of those who learn to wait for him. So when Yeshua says wait, he means wait. Don't you hate it when the Lord says wait and he doesn't give you a time, time frame? So you don't know if you have to wait a day or two, ten days like the, these disciples, or a year or ten years. The Lord says, wait. Again, remember that, that waiting with confident expectation is by faith. Not fantasy. Not something we cooked up wishful thinking. But something that somehow we have 
read in the word of God, we have sought the Lord. Somehow, God Almighty managed to get through these titanium plates here and communicate to us that he has a plan and purpose and a calling and a vision and that somehow, maybe, since he is God Almighty, he can somehow manage to empower us so that we can get the job done. That, of course, is where the Holy Spirit comes in. Just a word about that. People often think that until Shavuot, until that day, Pentecost, the Spirit of God was somewhere in the Bahamas um, on the beach. And then all of a sudden, the Spirit of the Holy Spirit just pops into, into activity. Well, remember, folks, Genesis chapter 1, we're told that the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the earth. The, Spirit, the Holy Spirit was involved in creation, actively involved in creation. Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit was involved with the nation of Israel. Here's what Haggai, uh, speaking from the Lord, is saying. This is what I covenant with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Haggai 2.5, and the word for remains, again, is not a passive. Omedet means to stand actively. And then you see all these individuals who were anointed by the Spirit of God and sprung into action, did all these amazing things. So whatever is going to happen here in Acts, it's going to be someone like what we find earlier in the Tanakh in the Hebrew Bible. People are somehow going to be amazingly equipped to do the work of God Amen. in a way that is way beyond them. And perhaps your inclination is to look at that and say, Me? Yeah, I can see it about him or her or her. You know, they're, they're highly spiritual and, and uh, I can see the Spirit of God coming and doing all kinds of wild and woolly things. As you read Scripture, you see that God took ordinary people and, and the Spirit of God came upon them and they did extraordinary things. That is our expectation. Our expectation is that God is going to to do great things with us. This is not fantasy. We believe that if God brings people together, He has a plan. Amen. 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 And Yeshua Tzion came about because it was cooked up in God's mind, not in the mind of any any one of us. And, and so we believe that the rest of what God has to accomplish with us will come as the Spirit of God comes upon us in a bigger measure. And that's our expectation. Why? Because we know we can do zip unless we are energized and driven by the Spirit of God. So we wait. Not that we sit on our tush, but we wait with confident and eager expectation looking for what God is going to do. 
And sometimes we get it and sometimes we are out in China or in a different universe. And that's where you see the disciples. So they get together, they ask Yeshua, Lord, are you at this point going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And of course, everybody likes to poke fun at the disciples at this point. How dumb can you get? Here Yeshua is teaching you about the kingdom. He's telling you about the Holy Spirit. And all you can think about is the restoration of the kingdom to Israel. Well, on one hand, on the other hand, what, is, what did the prophets tell us is going to happen at the end time? That Israel will be the linchpin of the centerpiece of God's activity with all the nations and that the Spirit of God will come upon people. As we recite each Shabbat, I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees from Ezekiel 36. So you have both and, but Yeshua is, is not saying to them, how dumb can you get? Which is what all of us would do. You know, commentators and others look at them and they say, ah, oh, these guys were ethnocentric. They were obsessed with Israel and being Jewish and so on. Again, they are getting a piece of the pie and Yeshua wanted to get the whole pie, the whole enchilada as it were. He has a different plan. And the truth is, in their shoes, we would respond the same. Think about it. We were, it the, the people, first century Jewish community was living under the boot heel of the Romans. Administratively, religiously, by the way, you may or may not know that just beyond the temple precincts was Fortress Antonia which is where the Romans had had our garrison complete with the Roman standards and pagan pictures and so on and so forth. It was one of these in-the-face reminders of we're not under control. So you can see why Yeshua's disciples are, especially in Jerusalem, are very interested in getting rid of the Romans. You also may remember that the disciples on the road to Emmaus were downhearted and saying, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. When you think about it, difficult circumstances come into our life and what do we want to do? We want to fantasize. We want to fantasize a different reality of how things will look as we see fit or perhaps what we think God will do. And it's very, very, very difficult then to back up and say, Lord, whatever it is that you want, that's what I want. Regardless of what garbage, ugly things are happening, I want your reality. I don't want just relief from pain, and frustration. I want your reality. I want a fuller picture. What you have in mind. 
And the Lord will do that if we're willing. It's especially true when we are in, in situations where we have conflict with people. And we either want to get in their face, tell them how stupid they are. I'm sure you wouldn't do that. Or else pray the imprecatory prayers. Lord, you're the righteous judge. Would you please um, cause them to repent and, and if necessary make their teeth fall out? Bring about righteous judgment on them. Yeah. And at some point you get the fact that maybe the Lord has a different plan. That maybe part of the plan is learning to have compassion for the people who do you dirt. And at some point the Lord really pushes you and says, well, I want not only compassion, I want to bring about reconciliation at some point. Then at that point you say to the Lord, Lord, you've just changed from preaching to meddling. Now you notice the Yeshua doesn't rebuke the, the disciples. He doesn't say how stupid can you are. He just says focus. Focus. Focus on what I just said to you. There's much work to do. And you need power from the Spirit. And it's really beyond your pay grade to know how I'm going to do things and when I'm going to do things. Short version is MYOB, mind your own business. You will get as much information as you need to carry out the different assignments that the Lord has given. One of my favorite scriptures is Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us and our children forever that we may follow all the words of this Torah. Literally what it states there is these things are ours for the doing. God gives us the information. God gives us the authority to carry out what he has laid out for us. And then this is where I want to finish. Then he gives us the faith that we need to trust him that things will actually be fulfilled according to his plan. Paul puts it this way, for by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Don't fly off to different galaxies with, with, by fantasizing but rather see the situation through God's eyes through the eyes of faith as God has given you the faith to be able to see situation from his perspective the Lord tells us things we are not real comfortable with he wants us to stay in a place of failure 
and see him do amazing things in the place of failure. He wants us to wait, which goes against the grain for us. And we eventually learn that God's best come as we learn to wait on him. Then he wants us to have the attitude of expectation, not in ourselves, but in what the Lord wants to do. In a moment or so, we'll conclude with a time of worship. And I'd just like to encourage you to listen to what the Lord has been saying to you through all of this. If you'd like to come up for prayer, please do so. Father God, we thank you that you're amazingly patient in getting through to us, Lord. In conveying your reality again and again, Lord, even when we doubt your existence, when we doubt your goodness, Thank you, Lord God, that you come and and you uh, sweep us off our feet. We thank you, Lord, even for these difficult and challenging instructions that you give us, Lord, to stay and not run away, Lord, when we have gone through periods of failure and difficulty. Thank you, Lord, that you teach us what it means to wait in confident expectation. And thank you, Lord God, that you give us the measure of faith we need to be able to trust you and follow you. We desire that, Lord. We desire that for ourselves as individuals, for ourselves, Lord, as a congregational mishpacha. Lord God, we are (coughs) eagerly waiting to see the good things you have to accomplish in us. We bless you, Lord, in the name of Yeshua. Amen.